Shrink Wrap is a series of in-depth, candid conversations with creative entrepreneurs who have forged unique careers that defy convention. Each conversation unwraps the subtle and sometimes not so subtle layers that form each guest's distinct body of work. I'm Bradley Bowers, and this is Shrink Wrap. Today's guest is an artist, designer, bonsai enthusiast, mountain biker, and friend of mine that I've known since our days in college. Uh, Jerome, go ahead, introduce yourself, and tell us a little bit about you. All right, uh, I'm Jerome Tave. Uh, I'm an artist and designer living in San Francisco. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in France and, and Dubai uh, and moved to America after university, and uh, I've been here ever since. And when you moved to San Francisco, is that where your design career, like your professional design career started? Or was there something in between university and San Fran? Uh, I lived in Los Angeles for two years uh, doing design consulting there. And so that was sort of a stepping stone in the sorts. Was that uh, just kind of like typical design student getting out of college and going into the field? Or was there kind of a vision even then for what you wanted to do? Um, at that point, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had some ideas, but I think uh, where I ended up uh, was, was actually perfect. I think the design consulting environment is perfect for students who are um, kind of fresh out of university because you get to work on a, a wide variety of projects, um, typically for yeah, a wide variety of companies from large corporations to smaller smaller sort of in-house product companies. Um, and uh, I think that that sort of helped me gain a perspective of where I wanted to take my my back, my education, my, my design skills, and um, where I wanted to move forward with it. And you said that you kind of were doing a, not necessarily freelance, but maybe maybe freelance. I still think it's entrepreneurial when someone can work for multiple people at once. Do you think you didn't go into environmental or sustainable design immediately because there wasn't necessarily a curriculum for that? Because I remember when we were in school, there was a sustainability class in a club, and that was about it. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that had any impact on it, or was it kind of something that you were going to have to stumble into on your own anyway? I think it was, it's always something that's been part of my lifestyle and one of my like personal values. Um, uh, and even back in college, I think when we were in school, that was, uh, what was it, like almost more than like 10 years ago at this mm-hmm. point, I feel like sustainability was one of the things that was like sustainability in design was a little bit more, uh, like it didn't feel like the norm in a way, and it mm-hmm. felt like we were doing something, uh, something special and something different, uh, something that needed to be done, even though it, it had needed to be done and considered for years already by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, now it's uh, it's definitely become more part of uh, everyday discourse. I think even for non-designers, and uh, I think. You know, it's 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 become much more approachable of a topic with, you know, with most people, and mm-hmm. and people are more receptive uh, uh, to to discuss and, and talk about topics that that, that um, involve sustainability and climate change and things like that. 
Was there ever like a time when you first were in LA, were you ever able to introduce some sustainable or more environmentally conscious ideas even then in your early career, fresh out of school, or was it still something you were, you were finding a way to kind of inject into mainstream design? Cause you, wait, what were those? Cause I think you were with, was it Uber or was that Zarni? I can never remember if it was you or Zarni that was with Uber or you both were. Um, so I was at RKS Design. Uh, that, that was an industrial design firm. So not Uber uh, at all. <laughs> no, no. I, I did work for, uh, so my, my, my first uh, project after I moved to San Francisco was like kind of in the, little, I, I dove into the tech world just to see what that was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked, I, I created a conference calling service called Uber Conference. Um, and so that's maybe what you're remembering. Ah, okay. Maybe that's uh, it. Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, I don't remember where I was going with that. Well, was there ever, like, an opportunity when you're working for these companies? I guess, and actually, I think a better question is, how does service design or interaction design, how do those industries, in your opinion, contribute to the de- the design for like sustainability or for environmental consciousness, how can they contribute? Because in my mind, since they don't necessarily have a physical product output, I almost feel like they might consider themselves exempt from the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think, uh, so when I was doing more products, physical product design, um, obviously the designers do have more of a, of a say in terms of like what, you know, certain decisions that, that, that could affect more of the environmental impact of the product. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, but yeah, moving into the more digital space, uh, it definitely, I mean, there's definitely a huge, like, footprint for, for the existence of, of these services, which is actually quite invisible and quite ignored, uh, because it's so abstracted from, from our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, it's not really a conversational topic that much. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I think that people just assume that, like, there's an, a, a cost associated with it, and right. they just uh, kind of uh, move forward regardless. Okay. Now, I want to get into why on earth you chose mushrooms. This is jumping ahead a little bit. We'll back up, but I want to, uh, that's kind of, in my mind, I've I know that there was like a movement a while ago where everyone was growing mushrooms, and I think they were doing that mostly for culinary reasons. Was mm-hmm. did you start with a culinary concept, or was it always no? This is applying them in a whole new genre of use. So um, I think I don't remember. Someone asked me this recently too, and I don't actually remember how mushrooms sort of made their way into. Uh, into my life and into my, my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's, uh, it's in, I think the first, where we still, where we first started working with it was, uh, with, by uh, using mycelium as, uh, as a material. And that's where we started really getting interested with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, so, uh, what is my, into different my, forms. What is mycelium? Cause I know that, the little bit of research I've done, it's not necessarily the mushroom, but it's like the 
the precursor that kind of spreads out first or? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, so it's essentially, you could think about it like a root system. Okay. Um, and so the mycelium develops on, on a substrate, which uh, depending on different species of mushrooms, uh, they kind of thrive on different uh, sort of natural uh, substrates. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, so it, it's sort of like a root system that develops and it kind of, uh, and then once it's uh, sort of developed enough, the mushrooms fruit out of it. So it's sort of like the, the mushrooms that we're all familiar with, you know, the, the stem and the cap um, mm. coming out of the ground is actually just like the, um, kind of like the result of the mycelium. Um, and so actually, yeah, the, the largest, the, the mushrooms that we're familiar with, the, the fruiting bodies, um, are just on the surface, but uh, below there's a much more complex network of of, of connections and uh, uh, that yeah that that can mm-hmm. be sometimes extremely large and expansive too. And how else? Because I, mean, I know that the uh, MCU and for the people that are going to listen to this, there'll be a picture of it um, and maybe even the mold block that you guys made for it, but. How realistic, or do you even see this as being something where ship it out today, put it in Home Depot and Lowe's, or is this more of some exploratory work just to get people's brains bubbling, or both? Yeah, so it's actually, so, I mean, the the the, the goal with most of my work is to, um, I guess, create conversations and, like, that, that, that promote awareness around mm-hmm. some of these topics. And so I guess the MCU, uh, the Mycelium Construction Unit, which we, we kind of named it like that, it's, it's more of a, a conceptual exploration of what could be. Um, I don't, we haven't engineered it, you know, in a way that would be, um, that would be sort of usable mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat. I think that there are certain properties that Mushroom Mycelium has right now, just like uh, without any treatment, that make it a little bit, um, that, that there are some weaknesses that, that when you compare it to like a regular cinder block. Um, right. And um, I think you, you grew it around a wooden internal structure, so it's actually quite strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've stood on it and sat on it. I think it can bear a lot of weight, um, but I think there's it's not very abrasion resistant and um, it wouldn't be very suitable for like an outer layer, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, I think that there's there's definitely some possibility that this idea could be turned into something uh, something very real. But as of right now, I think we would, we're just primarily uh, focused on creating conversations and through our work uh, and just pieces that inspire people to think maybe a little bit differently. Well, I think one of the things I like about it is I, I know you're saying right now we can't swap it out for cinder blocks, but I kind of think that's the point is not to replace one thing with another. I, I, I always like to uh, I forget who it was, but there was some sort of quote where people were, the guy was saying to just replace one aspect of the system with another version of itself doesn't help anything. It'd be better mm-hmm. to, I think what you guys are doing that I really find exciting is sure it can't replace a cinder block. That's the point. We need to reconsider how we do construction. Perhaps the permanence of a cinder block is not necessarily a bonus. Maybe that's a problem. 
Exactly. And I, I think that's a great example of, of certain directions that I think that we want those conversations to go. Mm-hmm. And so I remember earlier you were saying France, Dubai, those are two very different, <laughs> very different nations. And now San Francisco, how, how, if any way, has it been changed or not changed, but how has your design philosophy been influenced by this kind of multi-global, multicultural background? Uh, and do you weave that into your work uh, outside of being able to speak like 26 different languages? Um, it's not something that I, I, uh, reflect on, uh, very actively, mm-hmm. but I do think that my, my background, uh, that definitely does, um, does come out and, and is, is apparent in my work, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in various ways. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the, some of the greatest, uh, sort of aspects about, about that that I've been privileged to, to, to have are, or to develop are being adaptable. And, and I think that's like a, a skill that I, I value a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that, uh, it gives a bit, like I've, I'm able to have a pretty, um, regular sense of global perspective. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, I, I talk to my parents who are in a nine hour different time zone regularly. So I'm like, I'm constantly uh, sort of bouncing back and forth um, mm-hmm. um, across different uh, parts of the world, and um, I think that that sort of uh, like all those perspectives, all these observations that that sort of seep in, or that that sort of like you you passively experience, end up making their way into into some of some of my work. And what's the, have there been like a, a, a kind of variety of reactions to the stuff that you're working on now or even your decision to step away from like corporate design work or big company design work and go into more studio base, a team of five or six? Has there been a, a, a variety of reactions from that European side, the Middle Eastern upbringing that you've seen or has the world of your friend circle been kind of like, yeah, cool, whatever. It's interesting that you bring that up because actually I feel like it, it, it the, the, the way people perceive, uh, or people relate to my work based on sort of like a general, uh, this is generally generalizing, but just, uh, the way that people relate to my work around the world is actually quite different. For mm-hmm. example, um, most people in Dubai, I think in Dubai, there's definitely much more of a, uh, have an expectation to kind of go into sort of international business and mm-hmm. for large companies who have offices there. And, um, I think most of my friends, when they, uh, th- that they, they hear that I'm like working independently as an artist, it's so far from, from what they're, they're familiar with. And, mm-hmm. um, that, that it, it's kind of interesting to, to have that sort of, lack of relatableness, but also I think that it, it sort of helps me to try to understand how I can speak to them still, um, and how I can like create work that's meaningful, uh, for, for, for them. Um, in France, I think that being an entrepreneur has been much more difficult throughout the years. And I think it's kind of the same way. I think people are more like, it's easier to fall into a pattern of, 
looking for for a, a, a job at like a large company where you have more job security mm-hmm. and um, I, I do I think there are some some people I, I have some close friends who are uh, doing the entrepreneur thing uh, kind of uh, in, in various aspects either in tech or or more uh, service-based uh, businesses um, but then but I, I feel like here in, in San Francisco it uh, it almost felt like less of a, a risk and yeah. more, more of my network here is, is more in the creative space and most and definitely understand and relate to uh, those decisions. And so um, I think it, it definitely helps a lot in terms of me uh, taking that leap into starting my, my own studio, uh, knowing that I, I had a lot of support and knowing that I had a lot of people ready to see uh work coming out of it as opposed mm-hmm. to um you know feeling like i'm kind of doing something so different and yeah, feeling, yeah exactly was the family supportive are they is it like an do your parents have like an entrepreneurial mindset or were they kind of like looking at you going what on earth is he doing <laughs> they, um, I would say my parents don't uh, necessarily don't really have an entrepreneurial mindset. I think uh, my father's background is in finance, and um, I mean, I think that uh, yeah, I I think they they definitely are very supportive of, of my decisions of, of my work, and um, I uh, I do think that uh, they're. There is some kind of uh, adjustment around, like trying to understand what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think that they also have uh, a very, uh, like a, a very long history of art appreciation, and so okay. in that sense, I feel like they really they they do understand like what it is to be an artist and the value that that art provides to to culture and to the world. And um, so, in that sense, I feel like they're you know, they're, they're very supportive uh, um, in, in in their understanding of, of the decision that I've decided to make. And when you're not doing these things, I, I know personally what you're into, but what are some of the hobbies or extracurricular activities that you turn to? Because I imagine there must, and this might be me projecting my own uh, problems onto you, but I know as another design studio runner that it's incredibly frustrating sometimes when there's something that you're trying to communicate and people just aren't getting it. And I've personally witnessed, and I'm not even that entrenched in uh, San Francisco or the environmental and sustainability culture, but I've already noticed that there's so much resistance to this not necessarily uh, trend because at this point people have to get on board or find a new place to live. Where do you, where do you turn when you're trying to get some clarity or some peace or just not punch somebody? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like you you just mentioned uh, kind of talking about running a studio and I feel like we could do a whole podcast about that because there's so many, so many nuances in oh, yeah. to that. But um, I feel like, uh, so in terms of my hobbies and what I turn to, um, I think I, I, I naturally gravitate towards the things that I feel like kind of balance me out and balance out my, my work. Um, so one of them is, uh, I guess, around like 
personal health and wellness. I, mm-hmm. I do a lot of cycling. I cycle to get around. That's my main method of transportation. Um, I think, you know, I'm very lucky in California here, you know, the weather is sort of like permits for pretty much mm-hmm. year round cycling and, uh, kind of connecting with the outdoors, um, uh, riding in, in the hills around the, the North Bay and, um, and kind of going on, on cycle adventures. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, other than that, I would say that another, uh, one of my hobbies is, um, growing, uh, plants and specifically bonsai trees. Um, and so I have a small collection. I think I'm at about 12 trees right oh, now. Nice. Um, and so it's kind of like my part of my, my daily ritual where I wake up and I make tea and, uh, sort of go tend to the trees in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I think that that's also been a really interesting, um, what uh, trees do you practice. have? Um, I have, uh, I have a few junipers. I have, uh, two oaks. I have a cedar. Um, I have, uh, I just got a trident maple, which I'm very excited about. What's a trident? And, uh, I imagine that must mean something splits in three or not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So the leaves have kind of, uh, it looks like more like a, a three spoke leaf. Oh. I mean, it, it has more, more, uh, uh, than that, but I guess that's where the name comes from. Yeah. But I, it's interesting and, that uh, you say bonsai because I'm finding in my own like late night Netflix or Amazon book binging that all of the designers that I really admire, not all of them, but a large majority of them, there's some aspect of being in the garden or being in an environment where and I even, I, when I moved to New Orleans after living in Brooklyn, I was like, I need, I don't know why, but I just need to start spending way too much money on buying plants and making mm-hmm. a garden. Um, and there's something about, I mean, maybe I'm just trying to make it seem like this has happened, but if I go away and I come back to the, if I go out of town and I come back home, I immediately go there. Um, even if it's late at night and I walk through and I prune, if there's like some vines growing out of control or something, but I think there's mm-hmm. something really beautiful about having an influence, but not having control over something that you get joy from. And I don't know if that's the same for you, if that's how you feel with bonsai, cause I know that might be, well, that's way more precise than what I'm doing or what I imagine a lot of people do with their gardens. But do you see it being kind of like just a creative actor? Is there some sort of dialogue? There's at least that for me, I see a dialogue when I go outside and I'm like, Ooh, somebody needs to get some weeds pulled and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's definitely a dialogue. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I think with gardening, uh, it, it's, it's that way too. But I think with, with the act of growing bonsai and the, the practice about it, it's definitely, uh, like, uh, about learning about the balance and learning about our relationship with the living systems around us. And mm-hmm. obviously the, um, you know, the, the practice is like designing a tree to look a certain way, but you also are, you know, considering, uh, how the tree is going to react and how right. it survives and understanding the specific species and the environment and the, and I think it's like taking all those together and, uh, and, and really creating like a, 
a, a good understanding of like manipulating nature, but also letting nature do its own thing. Right. And I think that there's like some like kind of, uh, there's a lot of philosophical kind of like learning that you can take from there. I think that whenever I, I get really into uh, a tr- designing a tree or like, you know, uh, into the pruning session, a lot of different themes come up and, and it's, it's always a really interesting uh, practice to use sort of like as a, as a framework for reflection around those kind of things. Yeah. And it's, this is, it's the design process. It's for me, it's the same as sitting in a studio or sitting at my desk and running through a bunch of computer sketches or hand drawings is the same as going, okay, who is this for? What do they need? And if I'm out in the garden, it's okay. What species is this? What's its light needs? Does it need more nitrogen? Does it need more acidic soil? I have a goal in mind, but I can't be a bulldozer and disregard its input. So I, I, I see that a hundred percent in the work that you're doing. Um, even in the work that you were doing in school, there was a, a nice mindfulness that I always appreciated, probably never said it, uh, but I'm saying it now. So I always appreciated that. Um, but I do have this question because you're on the inside and I'm on the outside. My sister's an environmental scientist that I haven't asked her this yet, but I want to ask someone, why are people in by, and actually, no, I'm going to step back because I'm about to make the same mistake that I think so many people in this environmental movement make is pointing the finger at the wrong person. And I think we point the finger at the end consumer and the end consumer is confused as to why they're being chastised because they just made a choice based off the options they were given. So instead of doing that, I'm going to say, why are so many companies slow to adopt more sustainable lifestyles or business lifestyles, in your opinion? Um, I mean, I think that there's only one really sad answer to that, and that's capitalism and, like, the the, the need to kind of uh, satisfy uh, stakeholders and in, in the businesses and, like, the shareholders uh, and uh, kind of... I think that those pressures mm-hmm. uh, drive, drive companies to cut costs, and um, you know, cutting costs typically invite, uh, typically um, means a, a high cost for the environment. Um, right. So, yeah, I think that that's sort of, I mean, just like in a nutshell, rationalizing the current state of, of business, I suppose. Well, in that same breath, are there any companies that you admire or that you look at and you go, here's an example of how you do it. Well, I think that now uh, the consumers are, are starting to have more power in terms of demanding uh, products that are more thoughtfully created and mm-hmm. that are going to last longer. Um, I think that there's also, uh, I mean, one thing that comes up a lot in, in, in my work, but also in my purchasing decisions is, um, like buying things that are durable, but maybe like still created with synthetic uh, materials, mm-hmm. uh, or buying something that's 100% natural and uh, biodegradable, um, and you know it's not going to last as long, and we'll just replace it later. But at least uh, the 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 impact on on its sort of afterlife is 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 kind of somewhat more negligible, um, and so. Um, yeah, I think that now that we have, we as consumers and uh, people buying products have, are putting pressure on some of these companies, there's definitely 
like a whole wave of, uh, of companies. I think that it's not really in the large corporation, uh, corporations yet, which is why we're seeing, uh, sort of a lot of these smaller businesses popping up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, selling anything from, uh, like, from, uh, like kettles to mattresses to, right. um, to, to, to anything really, but like, and really speaking to that message around, uh, environmentalism and impact and, um, um, I guess really satisfying the demand of the, the consumers that are that are ready for it and sort of demanding it. And I want to. This is something else that I think often is missing from the dialogue in just getting people to be more aware and more conscious. Is where do you start? Because it's I've often told people that I think the the issues that any group of people face, any industry faces, not just environmental sustainability or climate or um, more conscious labor laws. I think the issue is always, you're asking me, and Elizabeth uh, Gilbert said this in one of her talks, it's like asking someone to swallow the sun. It's like, where do you even start doing that thing? And I feel like when people say, you have this many years in the climate, the temperature can't raise more than this many degrees, and these many companies have to stop. It seems so daunting and overwhelming where I don't blame people who throw their hands up and say, Jesus, take the wheel. Mm-hmm. And in that breath, what would be, if you had to say, here's two things that you can start doing that won't disrupt anything in your current life, but things can improve if you just start doing one or two things. Is first of all, is that even a is that a realistic question to ask you? Um, and if so, what would be your response to that? Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's uh, many many ways that that we can kind of like uh, make more meaningful choices and mm-hmm. uh, sort of consider like our our decisions more in a more scrutinized way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that obviously in the past, um, like our capitalistic tendencies have made it easier to consume more and harder to consume less. Um, so like, you know, as, as someone that's, um, you know, even just operating in, in a city, it's, it's, it's really surprising sometimes how easy it is to like, you know, fall into a pattern where you're just consuming more and creating more waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and it, it almost feels like it's more effort to, to, to not do that. Um, but I think that, I mean, even from, from very simple, uh, like daily mindfulness, uh, you know, uh, decisions, we can start just kind of, uh, shifting to, towards like, uh, a more sustainable lifestyle and, I think uh, just using using less plastic and using just kind of looking thinking about materials and obviously I'm really deep into the world of materials with mm-hmm. uh, our, our studio work but um, even just like if you need to buy um, let's say like a brush for for cleaning in your home like buying a brush that's made with with a wooden handle with natural bristles versus a brush that's made with like a plastic handle and synthetic, uh, bristles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I think looking at material, like a hairbrush, um, a hairbrush or just like a, cause I'm like, know, well, I don't know what a washing brush or, Oh, you wash uh, dishes with a brush. Or, what? Um, I don't, I don't, I use that. I was about to say that's weird. Yeah. Come on now. 
um, but yeah, I mean, just as an example and, uh, yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, paying attention to materials and being more mindful about, uh, about that. And I guess kind of, you know, I, I recently bought a, a tea, um, a teapot and, uh, I was debating between two different ones. Um, I would kind of like the design more of the one that, uh, of, of one of them that it had like a, a silicone lid uh, mm-hmm. on it. And then there was another one that had a cork lid on it. And so I bought the one that had the cork lid, even though I liked the design slightly right. less, but just because of the material choices. Um, and so I think introducing that into our daily consciousness and I mean, obviously there's all the, the small acts that we can do personally, just by carrying your bags with you and, uh, just being prepared, carrying mm-hmm. a cup wherever you go. If you tend to buy coffee and tea out, um, I, I, tra- I walk around with like a pair of chopsticks in my, in my bag. You never know if you're going to have like a lunch somewhere that, you know, you don't want to use uh, plastic cutlery or, uh, things like that. Um, so just kind of being anticipating the, the need for like consuming disposable, uh, items and sort of, right. uh, uh, prepare uh, ahead for that. Why chopsticks um, instead of like forks? Is it because you can clean it easier or? Yeah, I can clean them easily. Um, I also just really like eating with chopsticks. It's a personal thing. Um, and also I think that, uh, yeah, they're just, uh, I, I like eating with chopsticks. This is kind of a tangent, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> just because of the, you know, I, I feel like each bite is a little bit more, uh, more thoughtful and mm-hmm. you can kind of take your time when you're eating instead of shoveling food into your mouth. Right. Um, and so, yeah. Okay. That's an interesting, I was like, all right, Jerome, sure. All right, let's get those chopsticks. <laughs> but to yeah. wrap it up, I believe this was from, uh, I think it's Bernard Pivot. Uh, who had a famous set of answers to a questionnaire that was then adopted by James Lipton on Inside the Actor Studio. And so I, my favorite two questions, the first one is, what is your favorite word? Okay. Um, I've, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I think about... Uh, there's different words that sort of drive my, uh, that, that are front of mind, uh, over, then those change over time. I would say right now, one that's at the top of mind is symbiosis. Okay. Um, I think that that's sort of a theme, been a theme recently as I've been studying mushrooms more and, you know, the, the relate some, some mushrooms, uh, species like rely on a symbiotic relationship with certain trees and certain environmental conditions. Um, to, to thrive, and I think that uh, it's it's a beautiful uh, a word that beautifully captures uh, being able to like live together and live uh, based on like the the strengths of another of another being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would pick that one for right now. Okay. And then, what is your favorite sound or noise? Hmm. Was that um, was that it? The, mm. No, that isn't it. Uh, I think that I I just love the sound of water and of uh, of, the, of water moving specifically. 
Um, like Niagara I, Falls or like trickle out of gutter? Um, I would say, uh, like, yeah, like a little Creek. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I think that there's something very meditative about, about like a constant flow, um, that, and sort of the unpredictableness of, of the cadence of, of the sounds, uh, that, that is, is, is beautiful and just captivating. Um, but I think that could also be extrapolated to, to more of like an ocean waves mm-hmm. uh, sound, which I think is, is, is different, but also still very powerful and, um, and, and meaningful. I like that. Okay. And then finally, what are your goals for your personal work and for 10th floor? So, um, I, oh, I, think I didn't even my, put a time frame on that for like the next five years. Okay. Uh, so I think my, my work, my personal work is, is sort of synonymous with the 10th floor studio. Okay. Um, and I, I, I'm really, um, I'm really hoping to, to through trying different t- uh, techniques, uh, trying different, um, working with different materials, uh, working with um, a variety of different formats, whether it's video, whether it's in- installation, whether it's more sculptural. I'm just really looking at, I'm really excited about experimenting a lot and mm-hmm. being able to, um, I, I think, I think I'm staying away from one specific craft. Uh, I think that there's sort of like a pressure for artists now, um, especially um, I feel like there's a lot of artists that have made it successfully that uh, really get pigeonholed into like a very specific craft. Mm-hmm. And they get known for a certain style and pretty much exclusively doing that. Yep. And I think... Um, I, I have a lot of respect for like the mastery that's required to really get that good at something. But I also know that that's not really what I'm going for. So I am just really excited to be working across a variety of techniques and across a variety of uh, different media types um, to explore um, how we can tell different stories and how we can engage with people, uh, how we can create these conversations um, about uh, about the climate, about human relationships, about just like being connected with the natural world and, and the earth that we're living on. I like that. That is the probably the perfect way to wrap this up. Thank you so much, Jerome. This has been fantastic. I learned something about, I learned a lot of some things about you. Um, <laughs> and I think that this is the type of stuff that's necessary is for people to hear how others are doing it not necessarily giving them a guideline or a check sheet, but just to say, hey, it's not impossible. As a matter of fact, you can do it creatively. You can do it entrepreneurially. You can have a, you can have a life and not be destructive all the time. Um, so I really do thank you for sharing this. And here is to a great future for Tim Floor Studio. series of in-depth, candid conversations with creative entrepreneurs who have forged unique careers that defy convention. Each conversation unwraps the subtle and sometimes not so subtle layers that form each guest's distinct body of work.
I'm Bradley Bowers, and this is Shrink Wrap.